Welcome to episode 255 with my guest, Tim F. I'm Paul Gail Martin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check out our beautifully newly redesigned uh, website um been getting a ton of great feedback from from people who uh who like it and say it's uh, it's easier to navigate um there's all kinds of stuff you could do there you can fill out a survey anonymously and maybe we'll wind up reading it on the show you can um donate to the show you can read blogs you can join the forum all kinds of stuff so uh, please go check that out um I hope your Bermuda Triangle of uh, the holiday season is is going okay. I don't know what else to call that uh, that time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where um, where a nap is like a nugget of gold. <laughs> I typically between Thanksgiving and Christmas will uh, get up, go to bed around three get up around 11.30 and I'm back in bed by 4 o'clock, sleep again from, from 4 to 6. And um, I'm proud to say that I, that I have not been shaming myself uh, for it. I wish it, <laughs> I wish it were different. Um, but there's, and it's not that I'm even tired. It's, it's that, and I know I've talked about this before, but um, it's just that feeling of I, I just don't want to, I've had enough of the day at that point and it's really the the best that I can do and when I do wake up I feel even though it's the same day it feels like a different day and um, I guess that has to work for me I, my wife and I were talking about this in, in counseling one day and we we're talking about how she loves the holidays and uh, and I'm not a huge fan of them my depression tends to get worse and uh, our therapist said well is there you know did something happen in your past? And I said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just never a really fun time for me. And my wife started laughing and she said, are you forgetting about the time that, uh, your dad tried to kill himself and you had to check him into a rehab on Christmas Eve? And I had, I had forgot about that. Um, but you know, I was, I was thinking about I was trying to come up with some Christmas memories. It's not like Christmas was a horror story in my house. It was, I think it was the absence of things. Like, I, I just remembered this moment the other day. Um, my wife asked me, did you guys have a real tree or a fake tree when you were growing up? And we had a fake tree. And I remember every year, my dad would go downstairs into the basement, and we kept it in this box. And he would take it out of the box and he would put it together. And my brother and I would be there. I don't know if he wanted us to help him or not, but you could not have done it. My dad could not have done it with less joy. He, a, a robot had nothing on him. It was, there was no conversation. There was no smiling. It was, let's get this done as soon as possible. There was no enjoyment of anything, and I think, I don't know, maybe genetically, I'm, I'm, that's, that's how I am too, or, 
maybe that's how his dad was with with him, and so that's what Christmas meant to him. Anyway, that uh, that's how I feel about the holidays. But I do en- I do enjoy seeing um, seeing my my wife uh, get excited by it, and uh, and I like too when I when I find a present for somebody that I know they're really going to like. That that uh, that brings me joy. Um, let's read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with uh, with Tim F. This is, uh, these are all struggle in a sentence. Uh, Jenny writes about her anxiety. I can't go in the store today. I don't know why. I just can't. About her OCD. If I don't cover all the mirrors, something is going to kill me. The thief inside your head is, uh, she writes about, she calls herself that, and uh, she writes about her depression, uh, her dysthymia. Feels like there's a thief inside my head stealing away my motivation and joy, and he only wakes up when I do, so the longer I sleep, the less havoc he wrecks. I relate to that. Uh, About her trichotillomania, if I find all the kinks in my long, wavy hair and pull them all out, I'll be less imperfect, at least until I check again about her codependency. Maybe if I spend enough time fixing you and your problems, I'll magically fix my own. Emmy the Rabbit uh, writes about her depression. And she's uh, she's young. She's between 10 and 15. Uh, she writes, pulling three people up a hill since I was seven. Uh, snapshot from her life. I yelled at my drunk dad, I want to kill myself. His answer was, no, let me do it for you. When my mom sleeps through the morning and my brother and I need to go to school, I would walk him to school, but he has serious anxiety and won't leave the house without my mom. Uh, Emmy, I am not a professional, but um, I want to encourage you to talk to someone, to find a safe adult to share this with. Um, Maybe a teacher at school. um, But you deserve better than this. And that that is um that is not acceptable for parents to treat children like that and you are not a bad person but you probably know that um this is filled out by henry uh he's also a teenager and about his anxiety he writes my anxiety feels like an atomic bomb exploding but all contained in the small space of my chest snapshot from his life a couple of months Uh, I'll be okay, but then I wake up one morning with my anxiety out of control, knowing that I'm going to be feeling like this for the next couple of months, and that I can't do anything about it because I don't have insurance to go to the mental health specialist. So I start to dissociate and feel numb until I yearn to feel something. That's when I start to burn myself with my lighter so I can feel something. Oh, Henry, buddy, I'm sending you, sending you some love, man. Um... I hope there's somebody that you can talk to. Um, try Googling uh, low-fee therapy in the name of your town or city um, because w- there is help out there for us. I'm not saying it's easy to find, but there is help out there for us um, that's either very, very uh, low cost or um, free, especially um, for kids. This is filled out by Evie or Evie. Um, She's also young. She's also between 10 and 15. And about her depression, she writes, sitting in a dark train station and watching everyone else get on the train and being left behind. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. Thank you for that. Um, 
And this one was filled out by Honey Bunny, and she writes about her alcoholism and drug addiction. Having only one drink feels like watching the first 10 minutes of a movie, then walking out of the theater. Oh, that's a good one. And about her depression, she writes, the kind where everyone has boats, but you keep swallowing water. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like, I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Tim F., who is a uh, doctor, yes. and uh, he travels around the world um, bringing medical attention to uh, people that that need it. You go to some really far-reaching places. You're sunburned right now, and you just got back from <laughs> you just got back from Cambodia. Cambodia, yes. And uh, what, what were you doing there? Um, well, the the basis and the, the organization that I was working with, basically we go out for a couple of weeks at a time and into some of the more remote areas of underserved countries and set up day clinics and try to get people to anticipate that we're coming so we can see as many as possible. And then with whatever supplies we have, which often are fairly meager, um, we try to, to help in whatever way possible. Do they always run out? The supplies? It really all depends. It's kind of a crapshoot with what what we have available and what we're going to see. Mm-hmm. So in as much as we can read up on the country and what their medical ailments might be, we try to anticipate, but it usually ends up being pretty far off. And how long how long have you worked with uh, – do you, do you not want to mention the organization or um, – I think only because of my – you know, the fact that it's been fairly recent, I would like to, they're a great organization and maybe later on if I realize that, that I'm being silly, I'll probably try okay. to give them as much Whatever of a Whatever gets you to open up Absolutely. more about it, because one of the things that we want to talk about is the mental toll on healthcare providers. Absolutely, and I want to try to go into that as much as I can, at least from a firsthand and observational experience. Okay. Did you want to withhold personal information? No, no, not at all. I'm I'm more than happy to share, you know, probably geographically some of the things I may hold back, but... I'd be happy to open up about my life. That's I, a big part of it. I would love to get into your sunburn. <laughs> I, don't, I can't imagine what kind of trauma that... Uh... <laughs> well, it's probably going to be more traumatic tomorrow. There, I would say about 50% was from Cambodia and 50% was spending too much time at Venice Beach today. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. So, so we'll speaking, see. Of, speaking of the mentally ill. Yes. Uh, that was another culture shock uh, coming from a very different part of the country. Uh, but thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate that I just said the mentally ill because that's, <laughs> because that's like saying, 
You know, somebody pointed this out to me one time. They said that would be like, you know, when you see a headline that says, you know, help funded for the mentally ill. They said, you know, imagine if it said uh, help uh, funding uh, given to the women or, you know, <laughs> yes, yes. the blacks. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I, I will say as much as coming from a southern area, mm-hmm. uh, that last part really resonated. So, yes, yeah. I can understand. You're a pretty young guy. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay. And uh, how long have you been an MD? Um, well, let's see. It's five years now. Okay. Um, and, and to add to what you were saying in the beginning, I don't know why I feel the need to qualify this, but I am very much a novice in this. I've just started doing medical missions, and I'm very much a novice being a doctor, so I just, okay. I'm coming from a, a, a youthful place. I don't know. Um, well, I, I think oftentimes that that is uh, awesome. Uh, sometimes I've had young doctors that are just really invested and really mm. detail oriented and have a lot of passion and, and compassion and uh and therapists uh likewise so um and I think we've all gotten the cranky old doctor that shuffles you in yes. and shuffles you out. I had a great experience with a wonderful old guy today mm-hmm. uh who took about an hour hour and a half uh an endo endocrinologist mm-hmm. and uh super detailed really patient yeah. really thoughtful and i was like man it it's it, especially living in los angeles it's so easy to get the let's get as many through here as we as we can absolutely um i i think part of the issue here and and this is at some point maybe i i could touch on this too but um, is that a lot of times the old doctors that people may come to issue with were probably at one time the young, enthusiastic doctors that really wanted to spend the time. And that kind of speaks towards the, the toll of that profession in general. And, I, and when I say that, I don't mean doctors. I mean nurses. I mean... Paramedics. Yeah, exactly. Anyone that does that and sees enough suffering... And at the same time, sees enough of the same thing over and over. And I don't mean to certainly trivialize any anyone's ailments ever. It's just that for one person to see things repeated over and over again, you start to lose some of the humanity. The place where I see it in the surveys, the place where I see it having the worst consequences are the um, staff the attitude of the staff mm-hmm. in psych ERs. Yes. That seems to be the most um, saddening because it's the people that need it the most. Yes. And and they're met with uh, sometimes a lack of compassion uh, uh, and and it's is often the, the last house in the block for a lot of these people. Absolutely. Um, honestly, that and, and when I mentioned the, the point of bringing up, that exactly is why, that's why I contacted you in the beginning, because I've really been listening, I, I would say for the last couple of months now, I've started from, tried to start from the beginning in the catalog, and so often in the surveys, it's been so disheartening and upsetting to hear how many people have whether it's you know further contributing towards their pathologies or just contributing towards a negative look at the medical profession because of an incident that occurred, whether it be a psych ER or a regular ER or inpatient hospital, um, and and that's kind of why I wanted to come in and hopefully be able to talk a little bit about. I, I, we're kind of fucked up too. <laughs> <laughs> I. 
I, I always have the hunch that people um, who are in the business of um, nursing, fixing, mm-hmm. th- that there's... I always have this theory that one of their one of their parents was an addict or an alcoholic. Oh yeah. Oh well, that that goes and that, chefs. Yes. Also, yes. Well, that's true. Well, at least in my case personally, I can say that is definitely true. Um, I think you know there are certain stereotypes that are pervasive in medicine that you know psychiatrists are have psychological problems themselves, and there are, there's always a certain stereotype that attributes to to each different category but i think all in all to do this kind of job that can be very i don't want to say thankless but almost in in certain ways when you don't get a good outcome or someone passes or someone despite your best efforts still curses you out um, there has to be something maybe something deeper inside you that's making you feel a compulsion where for you where does that come from have you always been somebody that wanted to serve yes yes i mean there there's kind of a a duality there i guess because at first um i was thinking about going into the military Mm -hmm. um i was more interested in the law side of things and i was looking into uh, military academies in high school and um it actually took my senior year of high school, I had a science teacher that was also a physician, and she had some incredible words for me, and it kind of changed my entire view on things. What did she say? Um, well, it was more of the things that she encouraged. Um, I remember we were doing dissections, and I thought that was the most disgusting thing that, that could be done at that time. I think it was a fetal pig, which... Still, I remember still is pretty we had foul. to do one of those. Did, oh, it was, it was unnerving. Oh, good God, that little face and then just hacking away at things like we knew what we were doing. Oh, I had to take a break and eat bacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're one of the good ones. That's why. Uh, she was standing over me and she said, you have the hands of a surgeon. And, and that was a start. I, I guess I spent a lot more time with it and um, she ended up being kind of a, one, one in a string of many mentors that pushed me along towards a much, much longer career or much longer direction in that. I, I love when I hear people recount a kind thing that somebody said to them that changed their life, yeah. especially from teachers. Absolutely. That is, that is like my favorite thing to hear. It's just reminds me that there's, so much good in the world and that we do really make a difference in other people's lives absolutely and 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 how simple it can be to make a huge difference in someone else's life and i really have tried since that time to let her know oh that's fantastic so there's that and my dad's an alcoholic so (laughs) (laughs) so bing (laughs) you got both there um what where would you like to go where you want to talk about your childhood do you want to talk about missions that you've been on um snapshots from your life as a doctor um um you know that there's there's kind of a i i guess i mean i could go briefly into childhood and mm-hmm. how that ties in from a greater perspective with mm-hmm. with the whole issues of of mental health because i you know there's my experiences that i know and then there's the things that i've seen in medical school and in residency and 
while I would caution that everything that I say is not indicative of everywhere across the country, I can say that I've at least had enough experience to know that some of these things are pretty pervasive. Okay. Um, you know, in, in terms of childhood, from my own perspective, I've suffered with anxiety as long as I could remember. Um, that more so with bouts of depression in between. Um, How would the anxiety present itself? Well, I, I didn't realize until learning and therapy uh, much later how early it presented. But in first grade, second grade, I would get chronic stomach aches. Mm. No other kind of symptoms of sickness. Went to gastroenterologists and was worked up and never had anything wrong with me. But I would be out sick maybe 15, 20 days a wow. year with... Wow. Stomach issues, unspecified, yeah. and you know they would always come before school, and somehow they would go away by the end of the day. And it wasn't until much later, again, that I realized, wow, this is these are uh, very commonly in children. Non-specific physical manifestations like that can be anxiety poking its head through. Do you think that the anxiety you experienced was the pressure of uh, having to get good grades or fitting in? Um, it was more probably of the fitting in. However, the other, this and this incoming perfectionism that was pretty pervasive throughout the rest of my life was, I'm realizing now, I think kind of set early uh, by my dad. There was, I, I, other vivid memories from childhood are coming home with grades and you know i i think i did pretty well to end up where i where i am and whether it be a b plus or an a minus there would be the inevitable question of well why you know why was it not an a or why wasn't it not an a plus what could you have done better you know what are you going to do differently next time and um other things like i was you know i was an overweight kid i was i was fat I will I will say I won't mince words there. Um and it would always be something like if we'd be driving into a parking lot and I'd tell him to to pick a spot that was I guess close to the store where we were going to and he'd say, "Well, you can afford to walk, so let's go a little bit farther." It's it just constant needling and things like that. It set up a really shitty self-esteem for for years to come that and lots of bullying in middle school and um things just kept going lower and lower and i think the anxiety started to feed on itself of having things actually happen at school and then feeling more nervous that they were going to get worse and then um then when i was eight seven or eight my parents split up which in the long term was obviously it was a blessing, I think, because I spent the majority of time with my mom, who I don't have too much to say about because I think she is a wonderful person and she did everything that she could for me. Um, but I still had contact with him and that and the combination of school kind of fed this anxiety that, that just festered and festered and festered until probably when 16, I... I went out to a party and I discovered alcohol for the first time and holy shit did that let did that let me let loose. And it's pretty I, fantastic the first time. Yeah. You, yeah. Are you, do you consider yourself to be an alcoholic? I have been in support groups, yes, and 
um, whether or not it means that I was looking for things that weren't there or it means that it's something that I haven't fully accepted yet, I, I can't be certain. I know that there was a time where alcohol was directly causing problems in my life and I was abusing it. I was definitely guilty of abuse and I still am using it. And to be honest, I think I'm in a position right now where I'm in a very low stress field. So that hasn't necessarily manifested itself again. But uh, my thoughts are that there is going to come a day where I am going to have to stop. What is low stress about going into the boonies of third world <laughs> countries and and uh, on a shoestring budget uh, trying to save people's lives? Well, they are episodic, for one. It's not what I do every single day. And two, there is something reassuring with knowing what your limitations are and going in there and doing everything that you can. At the end of the day, that's that's all you can do. And I can find solace in that. It's being in an environment where you have every single tool available to you and maybe not making the right choice, those are the things that stick with you and really um, let the inner demons play, so to speak. I can't imagine. You know, I kicked myself when I say something I regret on the podcast. I can't imagine when as a doctor, you know, you look look back and go, oh, I should have, could have, would have. Can you give me an example of uh, anything? Well, I can certainly say a crisis that was thankfully averted, and this is at the hallmark time of uh, problems within hospitals. Uh, July 1st, so everyone knows, is the day that the new interns, the freshly graduated medical students, start in the hospitals. So just be sure to be very adamant about what's going on and be sure to say everything twice. Um, I... I actually remember making a computer error. And you were an intern at that point. I was an intern. I was yeah. fresh out the uh, fresh out the box. Um, and to try to, I guess, to simplify, basically I was supposed to have someone on IV fluids, and they were supposed to be on 100 milliliters an hour, which is a very standard rate. Um, I, whether it was because of the end of the day or whatnot, I put in a 1,000 um, which is, for someone who has issues with heart failure, a catastrophic event. Um, thanks it, because it puts their blood pressure through the roof it or what? Puts their, it fluid overloads them, basically. Yeah. So if their heart's not pumping effectively, then all that fluid that you just gave them starts to back up. And the first place that it backs up is into their lungs. So they can go into um, pulmonary failure, essentially, after that. And you just have mm -hmm. constant amounts of fluid in their lungs. And it's, if not caught early enough, a pretty – that much could be a death sentence. Mm -hmm. So so the decimal is important, important in, uh, in medicine. The smallest minutiae <laughs> counts. My goodness, does it. Um, thankfully, someone who was more senior there, uh, you know, caught that and nothing, nothing came of it. But that is something that haunts me to this time. And I, I can certainly... You can't forgive yourself for that? I can't forgive myself for a lot of things. So that, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, give me a, give me a list. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's lay the shame out on the table. Well, I think... I think most of them are alcohol related. So a lot of them are uh, secondhand reports. Because uh, you were blacked out. Because I was blacked out. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, these were during my marriage. These were, which is no longer. Okay. Yes. Um, these were during times in medical school, times in college where um, certainly nothing egregious ever came of it, but I certainly felt like a horrible person for um, something something that stands out. I remember I was in, in college, I was dating a girl, and probably were together about a year and a half. Um, so we had passed the point where we had both said, you know, I love you, and I remember drinking, and it was a birthday party, and I was next to my friend and his girlfriend, and I can just remember enough to say, do you guys love each other? Because I'm not sure about mine. And she was sitting right next to me. Wow. Wow. So if by any chance anyone knows or is listening, I am very sorry about that. Well, if it, if it makes you feel any better, um, you know, when I said, wow, my list of wows is uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, <laughs> the one that just popped into my mind was um, when I was in college. I, can't, I don't remember why, but I was I was um, uh, I lived in a fraternity house for, for two years and I was leaving the fraternity house and I had an orange in my hand. And uh, I was about to eat it, and somebody was in the second story uh, window saying something or other, and I just had a couple of beers, and so I was just feeling that, you know, that energy. When you're depressed most of the time, and all of a sudden yeah. you feel euphoria. Absolutely. I was just feeling completely pumped up, and so I wheeled around and hurled this orange that went through the window, and and the sh and at this guy, and a glass cut his face. Oh, God. And... I, it, it was just like, why, why did I do that? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because I, I was just like, I just wanted to take on the world. I wanted, I, I, I don't, I don't have words for why I did that. Absolutely. It's, and have you been able to forgive yourself for that? Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, <laughs> Five minutes after I did it. But there's a lot of other things I did when I was drunk that, uh, um, you know, cheated on girlfriends, yeah. um, uh, belittled people with, uh, with jokes that I thought were funny. Mm -hmm. And they, and people might have laughed, but there was a barb to it that, yeah. that I couldn't see at the time, uh, had an underlying hostility yeah. to it. And, uh, I made a lot of jokes at people's expenses, uh, expense in, for a lot of years yeah. and not realizing it. And, and that I, I cringe about it. It wasn't the only thing, but alcohol definitely made me realize in many ways what a self-centered asshole I was in certain where I thought I, I suppose I thought that I was completely justified. Um, I, if, if I may, another example, one of the, I guess, best or potentially worst <laughs> a dramatic break. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, was is is the transition from uh, medical school to residency, and they call that match day. And all this, it's this big pomp and circumstance uh, ceremony where people have been applying to their residency, their specialty programs a after finishing medical school, and 
on this one day in March, everyone gathers together in this big hall, and you're all handed an envelope. You oh, have, my God. You have no idea where you're going. If you applied or if you ranked, say, on your list, which is could be however however many you choose, 1 through 15, let's say, you could be going anywhere 15 places in the country, potentially. Holy shit. So you're, you, you, this uncertainty for the next three to five years, you're just sitting there with this envelope. And then at one magical moment, you all open this envelope and it tells you either you're going to the place you really wanted to or, well, it sucks. You're going to Wyoming. Sorry, Wyoming. <laughs> Um, so point of all this is I did not get anywhere near what my first choice was. And for what I realized myself to be an egotistical person, I was crushed. And my family, I had people come in from out of town, people I hadn't seen in a long time. I had my mom and girlfriend at the time go through this whole they they made reservations at this night's restaurant there was a, a party a celebratory party back at, at you know the house i grew up in and i got that letter and i turned to them i said we're leaving and got in the car and i went back to the house and i drank myself until i was unconscious for the next 24 hours um so i killed every good thing that they had set up for me it's it's amazing how low self-esteem at the center of it can have egotism wrapped up in it, mm -hmm. isn't it? Absolutely. I you know because I strived so hard to try to be that best student, that 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 perfect specimen that I always wanted to be, which is unattainable for anyone that that's listening. Um I, any kind of failure would send me into a tailspin. And that is something that I can speak on, I guess, in a little bit that is pretty symptomatic amongst people in the medical profession, especially doctors. Um, that, and that's, you know, that, that, that would be something. I don't know if... I don't. I, I keep drum, jumping in and out of chronology. I feel like oh, so. I don't. We, we do that. We we do that here. That's that, that's totally fine. It's very rarely uh, is somebody's story uh, organically uh, unfolded chronologically. Okay. okay. It it made me think of. I was just listening to a, another one of, uh, of the podcasts the other day, and there was uh, he was Asian. I can't remember if he was Taiwanese, but he Michael was, Michael H. Yes. Yeah. So much of what he said and his experiences growing up resonated with me 100% to the point where I said, well, I hope that I don't end up sounding completely the same and boring everyone to tears, but um, I'll try to make it as individualistic as, yes. as I can. Uh, I, I think you've done that, uh, and you're not saying that Michael's interview was was boring. You just mean, no, you no. Mean I'm saying that if I repeat, I don't want to yeah. be because he was fascinating, and yeah. and he was actually that was another one that personally for me was incredibly helpful. Yeah, he was uh, very honest. He was, and the thing is that. And for those of you yeah. that haven't listened to that ep episode, uh, Michael is somebody who got his training as a therapist and then uh, walked away from it because he decided he wanted to pursue music. And he had a relationship with a um, his relationship with his mom. Uh, she was had no boundaries. And he 
being a people pleaser um, really struggles to enforce boundaries with his uh, with his mom. Um, but did you did you have that issue with your mom with the uh, boundaries or is that with your dad? There are there are two kind of issues in there. And, and this is, you know, this is another aside, but I, something I learned from the podcast, which I was a term I was not familiar with actually before was uh, emotional incest. Mm-hmm. An entirely creepy term, but good God, is it accurate? It is accurate. Um, another memory I can remember rewinding before I kind of lost contact with my father is uh, being nine or ten. And after my parents split up, I guess my dad thought it was a good idea to date my best friend's mom. So for years, they were probably two or three years, they were a pseudo family and they were the youngest kid was calling him dad. And it was. Uh, an entirely fucked up situation to have a mom in complete despair over this and see uh, a father overjoyed with my best friend's mom. But needless to say, um, they broke up. And at 10, I'm sitting there on a couch with my dad while he's crying on my shoulder and he's asking my advice. And that that kind of summed up a lot of our wow. relationship. Wow. Yeah, that is textbook emotional incest i've never felt any kind of real fatherly output from him um i i don't know a better better way to say that he I sounds mean, like a really scared guy he certainly was and he screwed up a lot of his life because of not putting things in check and not getting the help that i think he needed i will say and i i don't I'm not trying to validate or vouch for some of his behaviors, but I do know that one of the psychiatrists that he had seen for a long time was busted for selling drugs to other patients or to other providers that didn't necessarily need them. So if you're getting mental health from that source, I can't imagine that um, it's going to go down a good road. Yeah. And and if his alcoholism was untreated, I mean, you can't even when people email me and say, you know, I'm drinking too much and I've got anxiety about this and this relationship with this person that for me, it all starts with dealing with your addiction. Absolutely. I don't believe uh, I believe that if an addiction is just uh, on the loose you are just swimming upstream with mm-hmm. every other every other issue and so it sounds like that might have been the 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 case with your with your dad absolutely yeah and you know and and myself which i can you know expand upon a little in a little bit too okay. uh, one of the things that i learned in support groups was um Alcoholism, drug abuse are are not necessarily the main problem. They're symptomatic of something deeper. They're just the manifestation yeah. of it. Fear, resentment, yes. anger, yes, exactly. low self-esteem. And it's the, the list goes on and on. So much easier to sublimate all those things by so much easier. indulging in something that ultimately makes you more destructive. Yeah. Um, so yes, that's lesson well <laughs> learned, I suppose. Um, anyway... I, I feel like this is kind of intertwining into how I would say the growing issues with my dad impacted my own issues, Mm -hmm. Um, especially come medical school, things started happening. And this is when 
his alcoholism started to become more apparent. Um, he was someone that I was never able to rely on anyway. I mean, when he, he would call, I would talk to him. But if I ever tried to call him, he would never pick up. He'd never return calls. So I never knew where he was, and I never really knew how to get a hold of him the few times I did need him. Uh, but there, there was a greater frequency, and there were there was one one weekend I remember where I kept calling and, and calling, and I, and I just I couldn't I couldn't get him. Um, so I waited. I just drove to his apartment and waited outside for hours and hours. And I I I kept going up and buzzing the door and buzzing the door, and no no one would come. And then I don't remember how long it was. Uh, before finally I, I saw him walk up to the door and he was he was stooped over his his face was flushed he was shivering and and he was you know speaking in this this kind of tremulous tone and i i certainly wasn't that that far advanced in, in medical school but there's it's a four-year process mm -hmm. and in your third and fourth year you start doing the actual in-hospital stuff so I was just starting there. So I was like, I think it, it looked very much like alcohol withdrawal. So that that was kind of my first slap you in the face type of experience that there is a much larger problem here that I didn't realize was going on. Oh, you didn't you didn't know we at that point at that then. point I hadn't realized where all these absences and mm. not calling back and and even now, honestly, as I'm talking to you, some things are are, are locking into place mm -hmm. that that are maybe did not see before but i actually fortunately had someone that i i really looked up to as a doctor that i was working with at that time so i i was very honest with him about my situation and i could not get my dad to go to a hospital he refused so the doctor gave me a, a medication that we use to detox mm -hmm. um alcohol alcoholics that are going into withdrawal and i sat for 72 hours in my dad's apartment with him and fed him medication and and I had to take I took time off from school and just sat with him until finally he was sober enough and in a sound mind and body that I kind of coerced him into the hospital and we had a long talk after that and everything I guess seemed lovelier um, How long did that last? Oh goodness, maybe maybe long, weeks. Okay, maybe I was weeks. Say, yeah. yeah, I mean, if the person getting sober has to want it, like yeah. uh, somebody drowning wants a, a, a life preserver. Yeah, um, and, and I will tell you that till this time, he still has never admitted the word. He still has never admitted the term that that he is an alcoholic. Yeah. Um, so. There obviously still is drinking, and we don't we don't really have contact. Would it have been impossible for you to say, um, "Oh, Dad, you're you know you're you're going through the DTs. Um, uh, would you like help?" And if you said no, say, "Okay, well, you're this is going to be miserable, but you know, just know if 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 you want some help, uh, feel free to give me a ring. But uh, I'm going to let you shake and flop around on your on your own and hit your bottom." The, the was, that, was that inconceivable for you to it was and and that was because it was so soon and the other thing that I knew with some drugs you, you can you can detox completely cold turkey and it is oh it is just awful I mean heroin 
um, many, uh, heroin especially is absolutely miserable, but you will not die from right. detoxing from heroin. You, from things like Xanax or alcohol, you absolutely can die detoxing without medication. And I was not, I was not willing to have that prospect of, of him dying and me knowing that that, that was a, a, a viable. And that's totally, totally understandable. I mean, that had to have been terrifying to, it, to you. Yeah, it, it was. It was miserable. It was so much, so much to 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 process. And even to this day, it, it's it sucks to you talk know, about. I I think that's the thing that is so difficult about codependence because part of the surrender is that you have to be willing to say. Well, that person might die, yeah. but that it is not my job to try to make them live a life yeah. that will keep them alive if they don't want to. I will tell you I am there now. Are you? Yeah. Um, I've, I've, we went through a period of not talking for two years, and then we probably went through a period of six months um, where... You know, we we talked, and I started to get involved, and you know there were periodic episodes. This is before that when we were still talking of paying bills, or I would go out and buy groceries for him, and, and things like that. And there was a slow rebuilding of the bridges, and then I remember another another case where you know he he had been he certainly wasn't changing, and I know that that'll never happen, but it was at least amicable. And he was remorseful about certain things. Um, but I do remember a time where I don't know what he thought he was doing for me by trying to set up a meeting with someone he met in a bar, you know, that, that might be related to my career. And I was doing something else. So I, I missed that opportunity. And he called in a rage and was yelling and screaming at me, you know, how could you do that? How could you make me look like that? And I, I laughed and I hung up on him, and that was the last time we've talked. And Good for you, where it stands right now, and this is these are the things that that's. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I, sorry that that yeah that happened, but um, I mean that's uh, that's some serious boundary setting, man. You you should uh, really be proud of yourself because uh, it's like the the. The better the boundary, the more painful it is to set. Yeah. <laughs> For me, yeah. at least. Yeah. I hate disappointing people. I hate people yeah. being upset with me. Absolutely. It, it makes my stomach churn. Absolutely. I, I identify with that 100%. So now as it stands, I'm just waiting to get the phone call that says that someone found him. And that, that's, that's, that's it. That's the end. Look, you're, you're getting yeah. emotional. What's, yeah, what's I up? mean that's because that's very real, and it's it's going to happen soon. I mean, he was he was really sick and ill looking, you know, and he was eating one meal a day, and uh, it was his job, so to speak. He's on a hundred percent disability, which is another gross gross abuse of the system. Um, but he was tending bar as as a side job at, at a VA. Wow. Um, so it's, it's just this whole perverse thing that, um, you know, of course I, and not to, I'm certainly not jumping into anything, but 
since I have a couple other things I could say, I could tell you one of the fears that I, I still have is that there's going to be some lingering part of me that's going to say, well, maybe I should have tried to say something else in the end. You know, I have that. I go over that same thought probably on a weekly basis about my relationship with with my mom mm -hmm. about having cut contact with her Absolutely. and that she will die and then suddenly I will realize oh I should have done this yeah and then I'll beat myself up yeah but it I, I can tell you at least for me uh, the longer I have distance from her and that kind of toxicity um the the less I think about it and the more at peace my mind um gets so I'm working with it yeah, yeah it's, but it's hard it's hard having a sick parent, yeah. Especially when we ourselves are sick, mm. you know, emotionally, mentally. It's it's hard, and I'm sure it's hard for them. Absolutely, and I can't imagine. And and he was the he was very close lipped about everything, what was going on in his life, how he was feeling, and and even about his upbringing. You know, I. I between the two sets of grandparents, I would say I wasn't particularly close with his, but there was nothing overt in terms of personality that I ever mm -hmm. saw. So I don't know. I have no way of knowing what he grew up with other than I know we are, you know, we are an Irish family that grew up with alcoholism in many generations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I'm sure that was part of it, but I don't know where the anxiety and, and, and all of that came from. And I'll, I know now that I'll never know. Um, I'm only just trying to identify these things in myself, which are definitely there. I just got back but into, you're, but you're seeking and that's, what's so important. There's nothing more important than, than being a seeker. Absolutely. I want to, again, I 100% agree. I'm probably going to beat that phrase to death, but it's all good. Um, I, you know, I just got back into therapy recently and, uh, was going through, originally it was going to do some anticipatory work just to try to mm -hmm. keep myself on my game. Uh, but they're actually in some, the event of your dad, that passing. and, and just transitions in life. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still working through different careers and, and I'm looking into new jobs. So still in the medical field. Oh yeah, okay. absolutely. Still. What is doctor. your, do you have a specialty? No, that's, that's another and without probably giving too much out, but I, I'm a general practice right okay. now. And the thing is, um, general practitioners in this country really, that's just means technically you would have been a general practice doctor right out of medical school. Um, but everyone does a residency now. You really can't get work as a general practitioner in this country. Um, I actually started out as a surgeon, and I found that I just the career wasn't for me. It, it wasn't where my passion was. I worked with great people, and I found a great mentor there who I still adore and who still is very dear to me and helps a great deal, but um, knew that it wasn't for me. Is it true that surgeons are the most arrogant of the doctors? <sighs> I would say, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think that, yeah, anything within that, general surgeons, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, yeah. When you, when you have, I, all doctors more or less have that, you know, governance, life, death, and whatnot, and, and can intercede to uh, bring someone back from the brink, so to speak. But surgeons are the only ones that can do it 
in seconds to minutes. So I think that they've probably earned that. Not to say that they should be that way, but it's come from that you know, direct intercession. And, that, you, and you probably have to have a big ego to not be flustered when you're in that right, situation. Right. And that was also something that did not suit me well. I, I like taking time and I like getting to know people and yeah. having to see an assembly line of people in the morning and press on their bellies and, you know, ask, did you shit overnight? Yeah. It is not, was not necessarily fostering what I thought might have been my best talents. I'd kind of like to see uh, a movie, The Codependent Surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> if I make this incision, will everybody still like me? <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it would have been a hit at the cans. <laughs> at the cans, cans. Good lord, how uncultured oh, I am. Oh, the uh the movie thing? Yeah. Uh, I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. A con, I think is it is is Oh, well, tell yeah. yeah, I know you're, it's not you're, cans. You're, I used yeah. to pro- <laughs> I used to pronounce it. I used to pronounce it cans too. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, you're you're talking about a, an original East yeah. Coast guy that probably had some pronunciations uh, issues himself, but so, ne- nevertheless so what uh what else would you like to talk about uh have we have we um is there more of the personal stuff uh you want to talk about before we talk about the uh the emotional toll of no, i uh, think i think you know we could certainly talk about the the emotional toll and um if i could go back to one of the original points and and just a, mm-hmm addressing and and when i say these things i'm not trying to cover for i'm not trying to absolve any of the occurrences or make it seem like they were reasonable for happening because again i am could not be more sorry that they ever happened to anyone um but there are certain things that that i can identify um that want you know from two different categories one from the training and and two from just the humanity issue in itself um, the, on the training side of things, you know, doctors or the hard clinical people, and I'm talking about excluding psychiatry, psychology, mm-hmm. social work, and, and everything of the like, w- you know, it's very well described what things like depression and anxiety are, and, you know, that there are hard treatments for it, that you you have, you're dealing with serotonin, you're, you're dealing with trying to regulate those levels and, and try to bring these things back up. But uh, I think anyone that has ever suffered through either one of those can say that re- that really means next to nothing to them. And that coming from a place of utter despair and blackness where you don't think or you know that no one else knows what you know, that that someone coming to you and handing you a pill is is probably not going to make you feel any more at ease. Um, and, and I don't, I, I can't certainly not vilify the medical system for not teaching it. I don't know exactly how to teach it. You know, other th- other than maybe having people that are actually experiencing it and talking and saying, this is what depression is for me. Some of these things I'm formulating in my head as we go, so excuse me if they don't sound coherent. But a lot of, at least what I've experienced in myself and what I think I've seen in other people in the medical profession is there. there's kind of a, a duality going on during the day. Um, when you see that repetition of sickness and suffering and illness, um, there's always going to be innate 
psychological barriers that you use to essentially dehumanize to, just, sur- just to, to survive get, yeah to just get to get day. through the day yeah and the the combination there is there is a sense of urgency in the teaching of medicine that aside from the patient's health teaching supersedes pretty much anything else so anything that becomes a teaching moment you all rush in there and you 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 try to learn because there is nothing more important in in medicine and medical you know the the medical education system than being the best and mm-hmm. you know it's not something obviously that's ever going to be overtly said mm-hmm. but it's it's said in so many ways it, it it's you know ridiculous from from class rank to posting you know the exam grades up on the wall so you know even though they're they're coded with different numbers you know you mm-hmm. you can know what everyone else is doing um and that that fosters this this kind of ridiculous uh high school like mentality where people undercut each other and and again i'm not saying that this is ha- happening everywhere but it's it's happening enough wouldn't it be good if they gave grades uh, based on compassion wouldn't that be nice they're they're trending towards emphasizing that more and they're actually trending towards i think picking people for medical school that might be more uh compassion oriented or or through service or then science oriented and then there's going to be two schools of thought that say well yeah you're getting a doctor that that's listening to you and you know mm-hmm. really empathizing but does he know what the hell to do sure. afterwards also also a great point yeah my <laughs> Uh, one of my roommates in college was brilliant. I mean, this guy didn't have to study. He mm-hmm. took all of his classes were AP, and he got 4.0 yeah. every. And thank God he went into research because yeah. he was <laughs> the most socially inept person that that uh, one of the most socially inept people yes. I've ever I've ever met, and arrogant. Yes. Yes, we also have pathology for for those people. You know, you, we, you can't really piss off dead tissue. It's, <laughs> it's really hard, really hard. Um, but but even going back to the point, the just examples of things where students would go to the library to take books out, not so so much that they could study, but so other people couldn't have them. What <laughs> or. <laughs> That, that, oh my god. And these these are people these are gradu- people graduating college and you know in in their mid 20s and you know they're starting to be fully functioning adults and they're you know then they're they're acting at this level. So does where does that game continue then once they're on staff somewhere? Are they still playing those games to get ahead is there a pecking order in the hospital that you're climbing? In in as a resident, yes, there's always going to be you know comparing yourself versus other people because. But let's it, say you're board certified. It, oh, board certi- certified. It really all depends. If you're you decide to go into your own practice, then you know then you you may have kind of set the standard there. And if you're comfortable where you are and you you want to set up your own little practice and and tailor things to yourself, then then there might actually be a cap. Okay. Um, if you've been for you know seven to eight years a self-centered asshole though it's maybe not going to change by that point so it's hard to say when when that precedent is set and 
if there's any kind of reversal. If you stay in an academic environment, I mean, I suppose the sky's the limit depending on how high you want to climb and how much you na- you want your name to be known. Did I cut you off? Was oh, I, I'm... Oh, you know what? And I was, I guess I was circling back to that, that whole duality thing. Um, and, and really, the so learning, how the, the, learning, so the teaching, yeah, the teaching, teaching is, moments is, is one of those big things. And, and that's, uh, that's something that, that really, I think, I like to think that they're starting to address. I don't know. I know that there were talks about empathy and compassion and trying to really emphasize. Um, but in terms of, it all comes down to these things, volume, how many people each doctor is seeing, workload, um, you know, how many hours are they there? How many hours past what most people are working or are they going beyond and how much is that mental toll taking? And how many of your patients are, you know, script hunting? Yeah. You know, they're addicts that are, that yeah. are uh, you know, how many of are hypochondriacs Absolutely. that are draining you? I, I can't imagine that. When you've got a day full of uh, high maintenance yeah. people, what that's got to be like at the end of the day? Absolutely. I would have met going into robot mode has to save you on a day like that. Absolutely, and and that is that. It's when things come in. That's when that perfect storm hits. When someone who really, really just needs kind words and you know a a, a touch that soothes and not causes any kind of discomfort to to come through. And that person, you know, who may have been there yesterday is not there today. So, so many of these situations are, could be based on so many things. You know, the, the individual that comes into the ER after a sexual assault may be being seen by a physician or a nurse who had worked 18 hours yesterday and then went home and had a horrible, uh, fight with their spouse or and maybe had a patient die the previous day and they're coming in with this horrific baggage and um and another one gets gets the the brunt of that and again i'm not it's not explaining it's not apologizing for it's it's just these are the things that can happen and and i guess the only message that i could try to it, convey from that is you know you have these bad experiences but please don't Please don't let it color everything and don't give up on the medical profession as a whole. I know that there are some really fantastic, fantastic, wonderful people out there who supersede my my levels of compassion and empathy and and somehow get up every day and are able to put you know even if it's not their home persona a persona on where they just know how to make people feel heard and 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 welcome my my uh, best friend is is one of those people he's uh, mm-hmm. uh mike Semahar. he was a guest on the on the program and he's mm-hmm. an interventional pain specialist oh and okay. he is and so you imagine he's all day long he's dealing with people who are in chronic sometimes severe pain a lot of elderly patients mm-hmm. and he's a um just a really um patient mm-hmm. um compassionate mm-hmm. guy um but codependent yeah alcoholic father yeah um but yeah but yeah. you know he's done he's done <laughs> he's done work on himself to yeah. get to 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 get to that place but yeah. uh 
yeah, he's one of the definitely one of the good ones. I, I've met a ton of doctors that are I experienced a ton of doctors that were uh, just really great and patient and, uh, and kind. Oh, absolutely. They're, they're definitely out there. And I've, I've had a string of amazing mentors myself. And I know that this crisscrosses back into my other point. But I think with – and again, where a lot of people that go into the medical profession have some kind of, I think, emotional or psychological mm-hmm. – not going to say pathology, but wanting. I, I think that um, – you know, we, we do we do find it. We we look for the suffering, and sometimes it just kind of overtakes us. You know, mm-hmm. we we realize we don't we're not an infinite well of compassion, and that that sometimes that that well runs dry for a bit, and that's when the these type of unfortunate uh, occurrences yeah, happen. I hear therapists talk about having to charge their batteries. You know, having yes. to. Um, just unplug from from everything yes and uh, you know make sure that their their hours aren't too much yeah setting boundaries with Absolutely. with patients um etc etc um was there another point that you wanted to uh finish or make yeah um yeah if if, if at all uh, possible um just the the other side is just the humanity uh, of these medical professionals as well is that think about you know, when you do, especially in residency, where it's very common to do, you know, maybe 18-hour days or they do overnight shifts, too. So you might end up working 30 hours in a row. Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really all depends there. But the point being is you may have to be back at the hospital at 4.30, 5.30 the next day. So coping mechanisms become a big thing and and that this is where the frailties of us as as humans come in the same as anywhere else is that yeah it would be fantastic to go home and do a five mile run and decompress and meditate and you know do things that really are going to be healthy healthy to 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 get you through this but the reality of it is the way you feel the exhaustion the toll it's so much easier to reach for a bottle or reach for a sleeping pill. Um, and that's more often than not what happens. Um, I, Do you think there's a fair amount of addiction in, oh, in the medical community? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, that's been fairly well proven. There's a fairly high... Oh, I, yeah. I was just going to say that. That reminded me of... Um, We'll finish your thought, and then no, no, I'll no. Share, share the anecdote with you. Uh, okay. Uh, no, all, all I was saying is that um, there there certainly is a lot of studies to show that, that that rates of suicide, accidental overdose, there are they're fairly significant. We even had um, one from our program, someone that, that um, was found. Uh, she was already graduated, but she was, she was working as an active physician, and just one morning didn't show up, and they, they found her um, overdose on sleeping pills. And it was not intentional, but mm-hmm. I think that it probably you can only speculate here. That and maybe, was she stealing them from the hospital or no, wherever? No, she, she likely had her own prescription, but you maybe can, had developed a tolerance to the extent yeah. that was taking you know more than needed mm-hmm. at the time just to try to get some kind of effect. Uh, one of the stories that uh, I heard... And I won't say which doctor I heard it from because I don't want to uh, incriminate. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his peers was a uh, anesthesiologist who apparently had 
uh, developed an addiction to a really, really strong um, painkiller. And what he would do is when he was when he would be doing a patient, he would um, be injecting himself. You know, mm-hmm. I guess you have your own little table, your yeah. own little oh, anesthesia yeah. table. So he would be behind there, mm-hmm. and he'd be giving the patient something, and then he'd be giving himself something. He got them mixed up, and the thing that he was supposed to give the patient is the thing that paralyzes them, mm-hmm. and he gave it to himself. Mm-hmm. And so they were, like, telling him, you, you know, uh, you know, do this, do that, and he's not moving at all. And and your your mind is completely yep. alert while yep. you're paralyzed, yep. and he just knew he was fucked at that oh, moment. The, the Oh yeah, the jig was up. I I have actually yeah I've heard a very similar story, and there's you know there's been stories of you know residents that have been found in on call rooms, unconscious or dead, overdosed, and and I mean it's, I guess my whole point for saying these things is that just to realize that we're experiencing the same damn frailties as everyone else, and that that kind of speaks volumes about we try to act. Mm in the ways that that are befitting and you know of what hippocrates oh so long ago had said about the conduct of of a physician um but as part of human nature we're we're, excuse me put it bluntly we're still gonna fuck up yeah uh the episode we did with a policeman andy uh is a good one too about uh, he calls it um cumulative uh ptsd Mm -hmm. um and it, and it just begins. You got to find a way to, you know, to recharge your battery, right? So that when you're talking with somebody who is on edge, yeah, um, you can diffuse this situation, yeah. Uh, even though you may not be feeling a tremendous amount of patience yeah. in your body at that at that moment, yeah. Uh, what else would you like to uh, to to share? Well, I, I, I mean, I could certainly. Uh, I can think of things that that still haunt me, and I can think of things about my alcoholism, and and I don't know if that that would. No, be... you know, I feel like we like we've we we've touched on that. You know what I'd like to hear yeah. is a couple of sh- snapshots uh, that were poignant, either painful or beautiful or life affirming, of you doing work out in the field in oh. some of these. Um, sure. Out of the way sure. places. Absolutely. Um, Overwhelming. Some of the the most amazing experiences, I think, are with children. And uh, a lot of it is because in the areas that we go to, uh, they're often areas that have been untouched in the sense that there's never been a physician in the area. There's never been any concept of medicine other than what might be uh, local practices or, um, you know, local traditional medicine um, which most of the time we we really know nothing about going in, so there's there's not much we can say about that. And you know, to, to be able to talk with child and mom and and just give the most basic advice on things to look out for, or to talk about things like hygiene, to talk about you know brushing your teeth, to to be able to teach them how to make clean water. Um, to to start just to examine and to touch and to try to give reassurance that you know to the mom that your child is completely normal or developing or there there are you know maybe a couple things that we could address and 
I could say as a comparison, and I don't want to make any kind of broad sweeping generalizations, but the level of appreciation, the gratitude um, is, is something that I, I certainly don't see on a regular basis when I'm more in a in a paid position. Uh, you know, most of the the work that I do abroad is is volunteer, um, and but that honestly is something that more recharges my batteries than things that I would do clinically here. Um, there, there just there is something, you know, one about experiencing a new culture and. and uh, and knowing those nuances and, and broadening yourself as a person. And then there is the gratitude that you, you get from each individual. And children are definitely the, the best for that. You can't beat a kid's smile. Absolutely. You know? and, and no matter what documentary I'm watching, when people walk into that untouched village, yeah. the kids are always the same. They Absolutely. just swarm yes. around it and they're just giddy and yes. they're laughing yes. and they're playful and it's just uh it it, it just makes you smile a, a lesson learned on these trips was apparently the hokey pokey is universal i did is not it know really it. yes or or at least you can get a bunch of funny looking white people to do a dance and you yeah. you'll follow along oh that's awesome. that, in as much as that yes um so so those are I think being able to affirm things that you you take so naturally for granted is such a big part of it. And I would, you know, I would also take this opportunity to compel anyone that is in the medical profession that's listening that that these are absolutely great opportunities. If you do find yourself burning out or if you are feeling like, you know, the candles lit at both ends and it's only a matter of time before something happens or you leave or mm-hmm. Uh, give it a try. Seriously, give it a try. Every time I do it, I come back feeling like more, more of a whole person. Uh, I I would say what a great way to describe it. That's, Uh that's the best way that, that I can. And I think, I think that there is, I can't believe that I do anything selfless. I don't know whether it's a self-esteem thing or anything like that, but I feel like me doing this is still a selfish act because I'm getting enjoyment from you're, it. You're filling the spiritual uh, part yes. of yourself. That, that's the, yeah, that is the, I suppose, the irony of spirituality yes. is seeking it is the end is selfish, yes. but the means is selfless. Yes, very, very well put. Uh, I, I started, again, going into this whole seeking thing. I've kind of been studier of Buddhism for a while now. But I've been getting back into it and meditation and the sort. And, and some of the readings that I've been doing have been addressing this directly, that the, the best way to get fulfilled is mm. through through action to others. And that is kind of what I was saying, probably in a better way of me being selfish by wanting to, yeah. to help others. So that that it's is the best kind of selfish you can ever you can ever do and i think spirituality the word spirituality always throws a lot of people off but mm-hmm. the thing that you are doing to me um by going out and do volunteering to do that that is to me that is spirituality and mm-hmm. it's that is a, the greatest example of of mm-hmm. something spiritual mm-hmm. and you can tell i mean your face is lit up 
aside from the sunburn, you're, you know, uh, you can tell that you, that you're on a high yeah. coming, coming back yeah. from this thing. You you just uh, yeah. have a um, an energy about you that is uh, you don't seem downtrodden. You, yeah. you seem very vital yeah. and energized. Well, as someone that really, really has a hard time taking a compliment, I will say thank you. You're quite welcome. Okay. Anything else you'd like to share? Um, well, I, I thinking of any other, I, I think the the other side of the population, just to just to complete that that whole mm. thought, is uh, the the geriatric population is something that is simply amazing. Uh, going into other countries and seeing how uh, the dichotomy of how our aging population is in this country. Um, not often, but not completely often overweight, definitely with multiple, multiple medical issues. And, you know, I'm someone now that, that for most of the time I see elderly patients and Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, average of six medications and that's much, you know, there, there are some patients I don't see that upwards of 20. Oh my God. And these are people that could be in their sixties and seventies. So you go to another country and to find, you know, people in their 70s that not only are they on no medications, but they've never seen a doctor. And they've been getting around that way for for the entire time. And, you know, one can say whether it speaks to pure lifestyle, a, a, a lifestyle of necessity over a lifestyle of choice. I mean, that that's certainly can be argued or, or, you know, the fact that they just didn't have a doctor that was very <laughs> apt to put them on many different medications, but they've been getting along and, and, you know, you can talk to them and give them some very basic advice and even, you know, giving them Tylenol for, for some arthritis or some joint pain, which, you know, for the most part here, you probably get that Tylenol thrown back in your face. Um, and and to get again such a such a a gratitude a, a a warmth in return and there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like that. And I could tell you, even as someone who's still battling issues with substances, mm-hmm. it beats the hot hell out of any substance that that, that you can get out it's there. It's the best natural high. Spirituality Absolutely. is the best natural high. Absolutely, no side effects. Uh, no. No, except wanting to do it more. And that's, that's really, that's a good one. Yeah. That's not a problem right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we do some fears and loves? Absolutely. Where, where would you, let's start with a couple of fears. One of the big ones and probably one of the, the biggest hesitances I had with even Mm -hmm. coming was, and I still feel this way, uh, that no one truly cares what I have to say. Um, I have a very big internal critic, and most of the time I don't talk, and there are very few people that I can talk to freely about what's going in my head because I've only realized recently how bad it is, but it's usually either people are not going to care or people are just not going to respond at all. It's a tyrant. Yeah. It is a tyrant. It it is uh, unceasing. Mm -hmm. It is compassionless mm-hmm. it's irrational yeah uh and it never needs sleep yes um there was a a book that i've been reading recently and is is it okay to bring up books or endorse oh, oh, absolutely okay and and i'm gonna i feel so bad because the author is he's a he's a news anchor it's called 10 percent happier 
Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the, the whole, it, it's kind of a veiled discussion about Buddhism, but it goes through this, the life of this news anchor that went through his own hell with substance abuse and mm-hmm. on-air issues and finally started doing his own seeking, which led him more down some some Buddhist roads. And he got into meditation and a lot of what was in there resonated and even kind of reaffirmed getting back into meditation, which I've been doing. And that is, I, I, I think, honestly, everyone can benefit from it in, in some way. Uh, it is one of the best ways to at least temporarily quiet that, that internal voice, that critic. If you mm-hmm. constantly flood it with breathing in and breathing out and acknowledging what's going on right now, um, it's, it's not a cure-all for the rest of the day, but it'll get you by for a little while. And you're working on your bo- your your mind and your body both at the same time, right? And then I think it it helps your spirit. It, it when it, your mind and your body feel relaxed, yes. You're, I think you're more in a place of to be able to relax, react to the world uh, from a place of uh, peace. Yes. And there is there there's there's a kind of internal discord when you know. And I'm not, not trying to go into any kind of metaphysical topics, but when you're living in the present and your mind is either in the past or in the future, that you, you, it can't be reconciled. So, of course, there's going to be some kind of stress that's caused and that I think where, is where a lot of anxiety comes from. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Give me another one. Okay. Um, <laughs> this kind of somewhat contradicts my previous statement, but... I also have a fear that I overanalyze myself and that I'm finding nuance where there is nothing and that just constantly looking and looking and saying, oh, well, I found this or, oh, well, I found that. And then there's then there's another thought, well, maybe that's just bullshit. Maybe that's what it is. And yeah. Isn't it funny how there there's a line somewhere in between self-reflection and self-obsession? Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to... To go from self-reflection, which is certainly healthy, yeah. to self-obsession. Yeah. It, 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 I wish I knew a way to um, articulate where that line is, but I, I most days I don't know where that I don't yeah. know where that line is. Yeah, I I, I completely understand, and I, I feel like uh, you know, and it goes down to that that comparison again, which I know in many of your podcasts says you know, is never fruitful, is never a positive thing, but I hear all these horrific people and it's like, yeah, I mean, things have really sucked at times in my life, but God damn. I wasn't thrown out a window. Yeah, and I never tried to stab myself with a sword when I was, you know, four or or whatever the age was from from the other podcast. So then there's another part of me that makes me just feel like I just want to, if I could take on that, 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 you know, pain because obviously when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making this out, you know, emotional incest and, and all this, that's not that bad, you know? So it's, I'd say your dad crying on your shoulder about his breakup when you're 10 is pretty fucked up, dude. Yeah. That the image of that made my skin crawl. (laughs) It made my skin crawl. It was profoundly weird. (laughs) But you know what? Even it, you know, I think so many traumas are uh, just a thousand tiny cuts. Yeah, and that—that's. But oftentimes, 
you know, that may not be an episode that is um, compelling. Mm. So the criteria sometimes for me to want an episode is I want something to be compelling Mm -hmm. about it. So I do try to throw in occasionally an episode where there was nothing, where there was really no event to point to. Mm. Um, But I like stories. Yeah. So uh, to the listener out there that doesn't have an event or a series of events or anything traumatic to point to, if you're feeling fucked up, that's still valid, yeah, and that's still enough reason to go to talk to somebody. Absolutely, and because what you do with your feelings is the thing that's universal. From the person who had the most traumatic uh, circumstances to the person that has no trauma, yeah. at all, yeah. and safe, loving family, but they're still like, why? Why can't I shut my mind off? That is every bit as valid. To- uh- to want to go talk to somebody absolutely and and i would also say um yes like people please don't don't take my you know what i'm saying right now is how you should feel because the one thing i can also from the physician side of things is that you learn over the years that everyone's physical and emotional pain is subjective and that it is entirely easy just as an example to for someone to break a leg and to walk it off versus someone cutting themselves with a kitchen knife and immediately you know needing needing a painkiller and and it's and it's neither one of those pains is invalid and that's 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 the and it goes this absolutely the same with the emotional issues and i know that there's even been people on the on the podcast that um you know maybe had ideal family lives uh yep. the, the one early on uh, i think uh a, he might have been a friend mike, mike Furman, where he, comedian yeah oh yeah no i'm actually thinking okay. of older he turned career criminal and he had a very good upbringing oh, murph yes 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 ex-con murph. yes yeah that yes. was episode number four my god Encyclopedic yeah. knowledge. Oh, no, just like the first five episodes. Of okay, I know. sure. After, okay, that, sure. after all, it's just a blur of faces and tears. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to know I'll be remembered for what I am. <laughs> Let's, uh... Um, yes. Yeah, oh, go ahead. With no, no, no. Your thought. Oh, I didn't even... Oh, shoot. I didn't even get into a good story about how my dad spent my whole inheritance from my grandparents on day trading but that, that was, well i think you just summed it up <laughs> yeah i guess that was that was another reason i was a little upset oh my god i'm so sorry i'm so sorry uh let's go to some loves okay uh, the uh, i guess the 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 breathless exhaustion that i would get when i do an early morning run that i swear i was not going to be able to do Oh, that's a good one. Yes. And then the endorphins. Absolutely. This one, which I, I don't know, maybe a little bit bittersweet, but... Um, I like bittersweet. The, the metaphorical, the, the clasp on, on the shoulder, the hand on the shoulder by one of my many metaphor, uh, my uh, pseudo father figures that I've looked for throughout all these years, whether it be in family or in medicine, but... Um, you know, some, someone telling me that I'm good. I can tell that means a lot to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't say, like, I mean, I grew up with a very supportive mom, but um, there's something, I don't know, there's, there's something, uh, 
never, never really feel good. Um, so that, that's a, that's a big one to, to, to not feel failure to not, to not. That's a pretty low bar to try to get past it, (laughs) to not feel failure. Yeah. It, it it is. I I feel. I'm sorry. Might you even say that you did a good job? It's very hard for me to say that. Oh my god, you are so hard on yourself. It's. I really. I feel regularly like I've, you know, failed something in some way, whether it be patient or, you know, it could be it could be something stupid that I, I beat myself up that I couldn't find anything to bring back home from where my last mission was to for family. I, I just didn't have the time. I think it's, it's okay, but I've still been psychologically abusing myself over something stupid like that, or, you know, over, we didn't have the medication that we could do to treat someone, but there's something else I could have done that I, and you know, comparing myself to the other people and how there's always someone that's better than I am. You know, it's it seems like the to be emotionally healthy in life, it it would be like straddling this line where we can look at the positives in situations and still be able to reflect where we might have fallen short without beating ourselves up and mm-hmm. that is like a one centimeter balance beam to to walk down to, yeah to, to ride i've experienced days weeks yeah. maybe even months where i feel that where i'm yeah. not i'm not beating myself yeah. up and i feel a sense of meaning and purpose but i'm also you know kind of checking in to go was yeah. I, well, you know was i maybe a little too short with that person yeah. oh yeah i think i need you know maybe need to make an apology yeah but so often i am Five feet off the balance beam. I've fallen. My back hurts. Mm-hmm. I was a dick to my wife. <laughs> I played my video game for eight hours. Oh God! And I, that make I understand that. Yeah, yeah. But um, you you strike me as a really compassionate um, person whose mission is to is to learn how to love yourself and and starting in therapy i think will be a great place for you and yeah. and i would imagine a support group would be cuz support group yeah. they loved me before i could love myself i yeah. i've been to a lot of therapy yeah. and that couldn't get me that it helped deal with some of the shame mm-hmm. um but the really being able to love myself um that that happened for me at and support groups because Enough people loved me mm-hmm. unconditionally that I went, okay, maybe, that, maybe they're not all bullshitting. Maybe I am lovable. Yeah. If you don't mind, if I can pose a question to you, sure. Mayor, um, how long did it take you before you felt like you found a support group that, you know, really clicked or that? Because I've certainly, I found ones and mm-hmm. said, you know, these people are really sp- special. They're really nice people, but I, I don't. Like, I don't buy into what's what's going on here. Um, I bought into the people at it before I bought into the process. Okay. And I looked at how their lives were working mm-hmm. and how the light in their eyes, and that, to me, told me that the process in these support groups worked. And that I was possibly 
just judging it before trying it. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't deny that I felt love and other good emotions yeah. when I would be in the room. So I clung to that. Yeah. And I just surrendered to whatever the process was that they were going to suggest yeah, for me yeah. to do. And as I began to do it, I began to see it work. And then I came to believe that, oh, this this can change my life. So there's a couple of different support groups that I go to. One, probably within the couple of weeks, mm-hmm. I was sold because it was it was the opposite of how I was feeling. Yeah. Um, nobody seemed morose, depressed, suicidal. Um Occasionally, maybe somebody new would be in there or somebody would be old and cranky. But for the most part, it was a room full of people whose lives were working, who were responsible, honest, and happy. Yeah. The second support group I started going to, um, that took me probably about nine months to feel a part of. Yeah. But I also sat in the back. I had my arms folded. I didn't go out for coffee afterwards with Mm -hmm. anybody. Um, I didn't uh, pitch in. At the meetings, you know, I didn't offer to, you know, empty the garbage or do any uh, other stuff that, that they said, you know, yeah. here's here's how you deal yourself yeah. in. Um, once I started doing that, it felt like home. Really? And I love both of them. They're okay. both, they both recharge my battery more than anything else. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily, it was the same group. You didn't go from group to group to group. You've- um, I tried a, a couple of different, you know, they were all under the banner of, of the same support group, yeah. but they were just different meetings. Yeah. Um, and there are some meetings that I won't go back to because it was just a group of people that they weren't really, there wasn't a lot of recovery. Right. Okay. Um, so when I would find a meeting where there was a lot of recovery, that's there's one I've been going to for ten years. Yes. That's just that it's a group of guys that have raised me yeah. emotionally. Have yeah. raised me. There's it's just loaded with father figures that um, we cry, we laugh. Yeah, you know where we don't uh, we don't hold back on our masculinity and we yeah. don't hold back on our femininity. Yeah, and it's it's awesome. It's very you you brought up that that last point, which is probably one of the hardest things is growing up and and being in an environment i think where where one you know you're being told by someone you know who's who's a parent that you know you're you're not good enough you're you're out of shape and then being you know bullied a lot um it's very hard to be emotional or appear weak quote unquote and that's one of the biggest things here and it's like even for me to say certain words and to have that trigger and to get very <laughs> teared up, it's like it's it's hard to try it. You got it's a leap yeah. of faith. It yeah. is a leap of faith, and every person to heal, every person has to take a leap of faith. Yeah, because you have to connect to another human being. Yeah, and that is a leap of faith. Yes, and occasionally, yeah, you'll you know, maybe you'll find somebody that, like a doctor, was having a bad day. Yeah, but the overall odds. Are great, yeah, and at least in the support groups that I go to, it is there's a gazillion safety nets, and I've leapt a thousand times, and nine hundred and ninety nine times they've they've caught me. Okay, well, I you think know. that's that's and the one time they didn't yeah. didn't kill me. <laughs> that's that's the important point. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So I think considering being in that seeking phase right now, it's definitely something I'll let I'm going to let Stu. Good. Give me one more love. 
Well, I, I could say, and this is something else I didn't even go into personally, but the one thing is is the the sound of my girlfriend's voice when she sings to me at night when we're going to sleep. Um, this is the first, and I mean, it's early, but it's the first, I think, healthy relationship that I've, you know, going in through therapy and talking about it that I've been in, I think, ever. And that's considering a marriage that did not go well and a process of trying to find women that had pathologies before I met them, um, bulimics, sexual assault victims, people that oh, horrific family backgrounds that I all wanted wanted to save. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, that did not make for, for good relationships. <laughs> I was really shocked every single time. You, what you, could have gone wrong? How could I not change them? I'm Superman. Yeah, I'm also a piece of shit. Absolutely. I'm super shit. Wow. That would have been an awesome Halloween costume. Next year. Next year. Uh, that is a beautiful. That is a beautiful love. That uh, she is amazing. She she makes me better. Well, uh, Tim, thank you so much for for coming and uh, talking about this. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I, I I hope I got my points across. I hope I didn't babble, and I hope I I hope it means something to to the people that listen because you do. Everyone that has these issues, you deserve every bit of compassion someone has to give you, and and don't don't let those experiences color everything. Thanks, buddy. Okay, thank you. Many, many thanks to Tim. What a sweet man. Uh, and I sent him an email to ask for an update because we recorded this a couple of months ago. And uh, he writes, um, uh, I'm actively interviewing to get back into specialty training and excited at the places it may take, take me. I've been making some breakthroughs with therapy and it's led to some painful but enriching realizations about family. I'm more in touch with myself than ever before. I finally come to the point where I'm ready to start group and I found one that I'll start in January once I'm back in town. I'm still drinking, but have come to terms with it as a problem and something that ultimately must and will stop. I hope my words bring some understanding out there to people frustrated with their health care providers and also encourage uh, people in medicine to seek help and not ignore mental illness. Thank you for that, Tim. Um, I forgot to mention this. I am going to be coming to uh, San Francisco and Oakland in uh, late January. Um, I'm going to be performing um, my uh, satirical character at uh, Sketchfest uh, Friday, January 22nd. Um, and Thursday, uh, January 21st, I'm going to be do a, doing a live podcast uh, recording outside of Sketchfest, not associated with that, um, at a club in Oakland, and I'll be interviewing a comedian, Guy Branham. So uh, I'll have more details on that and a link so you can uh, purchase tickets. Uh, I believe tickets will be uh, 15 in advance, 20 at the door. And uh, like I said, it'll be in in, um, in Oakland on Thursday night, uh, January 21st at 7.30 p.m. in Oakland. Um, I'd like to say Oakland one more time. Before I get to some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways you can support the show. You can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It um, 
may not seem like a lot to you, but it adds up and it helps keep the show going and it means the world to me. So um, if you could do that, that would be awesome. Also, if you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through our search portal uh, on our, uh, I believe it's on the uh, support the show page and uh, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something um, when you enter through that that portal and it doesn't cost you any more. You can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating and writing something nice. Um, you can also support us uh, by spreading the word through social media about the podcast. All of those things um, greatly, greatly help. So thank you. Let's get to some surveys. This uh, this is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Grimmy. And she writes um, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body? She writes, when I am alone, I love my body. I have wide hips, a large bust, a tummy, strong legs, and I'm tall for a girl. I have some friends who really help build me up and make me feel beautiful. However, when I'm around some of my family or at work, and especially around large, around large groups of people, when I am on my own, I sometimes feel like I'm going to burst into tears. I start to feel too fat and that my clothes are too tight or too revealing. I hate the attention my chest gets from men. It makes me angry when I catch them looking or making comments. Thank you for that, Grammy. It's amazing how much our mental state can, can influence how we feel about our physical appearance. Unbelievable. This is... Um, Struggle in a sentence filled out by um, uh, a woman who calls herself time to fling myself into the sun. She's a teenager, actually. And uh, about her anxiety, she writes, I've done something terrible and everyone knows the disgusting details except me. That's a great one. This is filled out by Rusty Jim and about his depression. He writes, feels like my body was pumped full of cement while I was asleep. About his anxiety, everyone wants to murder me. I don't blame them. Oh, that is a great one. About his food addiction, eating keeps my body alive, but it also makes me feel dead inside. About his anger issues, being in my line of sight can make me fantasize about slitting your dumb fucking throat. Snapshot from his life, I used to close my eyes when driving for 20-ish seconds at a time praying for death. Oh, buddy. I'm glad you said I used to and you don't do it anymore. Because I'm pretty sure the DMV, uh, if that were on their test, uh, even if it was a dotted line, uh, I think you that, that would still probably be illegal. This was a shame and secret survey filled out by Abby. She is uh, 17. She's straight. She was ra- raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, she's never been sexually abused. Uh, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. She writes, when I was a young child, I used to hang around with people who I thought were my friends, but who I n- now know weren't. I can't remember all the spe- specifics, but there was always a lot of emotionally damaging things that they said, especially around the fact that I switched schools because I am gifted. Darkest thoughts. I've recently been wondering what it would be like to be dead, not to have committed suicide, but in the sense of who would actually miss me. What would my funeral be like? How would my family and friends cope with my death? Questions like these sometimes consume my thoughts. Darkest secrets. The first time I cut myself and drew blood, I was so happy. Previously, I'd just been scratching myself with paper clips, etc., because I wanted to hurt myself but could not bring myself to cut. Then I tried cutting with a razor and didn't draw blood, and I thought to myself, wow, you aren't even good at this. When I finally was able to break the surface of my skin, it was the, quote, happiest, because 
who even knows what happiness feels like. I certainly don't. I had felt in a very long time. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? If anything, I would like to tell my parents that I believe without a doubt that I am depressed, but this is something that I do not know how they would take. My mom is a counselor by trade, and I know that if I tell her, she will try to, quote, fix me, and I just really want her to be my mom. Um, you know, my thought is, when I read this, Abby, is that you should read this to your mom or cue the podcast up to this point and play this for her because I know, I know it will get, it will get through to your mom. Your mom sounds like a good person um, who wants to do best by you. And I think one of the most common mistakes we make as friends or partners or parents of people is we want to try to fix them instead of sometimes just in the moment listening and um what you want is is so beautiful um and so um normal and healthy and and i believe that your mom wants to give that to you um so i think it's just really about you guys communicating um so that's that's my two cents um what, if anything, do you wish for to feel normal? Have you shared these things with others? No, because I'm too scared about how they will react. How do you feel after writing these things down? A lot of shame, but at the same time, it's nice to get the thoughts that have been bouncing around in my brain for the longest time out. Um, yeah. Um, that's that's my two cents, Abby, but sending you some love. Hang in there. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Nemo, and uh, she's a teenager about her depression. She writes, mild depression. I observe myself laughing from 100 miles away. Must be nice, I think. Um, snapshot from her life. I got up this morning and walked a foot away from my bed. I then slowly sunk to the floor and stayed there almost motionless for three hours. Oh, my God. What a snapshot that is. What a snapshot. I think... I think... 90% of the people, myself included, when we hear, read that or hear that, immediately want to give you a hug, and our second thought is, that sounds so comfortable. That <laughs> sounds, there have been so many times, but I got to tell you, honestly, I would go in the closet. I Herbert sleeps on a pile of clothes in the closet, and every time I see him in there, I think, why the fuck can I do that? Because that looks so cozy and safe and soft i used to have a dream when i was a kid i, I don't some of you that are older remember the the tv show i dream of genie and she lived in this bottle that had all these it was like a circular couch at the base of the bottle was like a circular couch and um it just looked so cozy and safe and away from everybody and it was colorful and it had all these pillows and I used to dream about living in that bottle. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Pink Leather. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She has been emotionally abused. She writes, last year I attempted suicide twice. I spent five weeks inpatient. Then two days a week uh, for six weeks, I had ECT, electric shock therapy, which would leave me exhausted. I also spent four weeks in an outpatient par partial hospitalization program. 
My husband of 15 years became withdrawn from me and mean. He dropped hints that I wasn't good enough, wasn't doing enough around the house, etc. He stopped talking to me and made me feel uncomfortable and unwanted in our house. He started to control my access to our money and would only give me an allowance to spend on groceries each week. He started to control my behavior, refused to let me drink alcohol socially, and limiting when I could go out again. A month ago, he told me he would never forgive me for the suicide attempts. He was never going to trust me again. Uh, I think I speak for the rest of us when I say, fuck him. Um, would never forgive you? For the suicide attempts, what a narcissist that he thinks your suicide attempts are about him. Um, now, whether or not there are any other issues in here, you know, it sounds like there might be an issue with you and alcohol, but that is a separate issue from your uh, suicide attempts and him thinking that you owe him an apology um, for that. Um Any positive experiences with your abusers? I've been with him for 15 years. I love him. I always will. We have two amazing children. How can he hate me so much? You know, my thought is is that he is probably projecting some something on himself that that he hates or that frightens him. And I was thinking the other day about, you know, if you look at anger, underneath anger, there's always fear. And so many of our emotions, if you look underneath them, it, it's being triggered by some other emotion. And I honestly think the two primary emotions that everything springs from are love and fear. Uh, almost anything can be, can be brought back to, to those two things. And it sounds like your husband is coming at you from a place of fear and not a place of, of love. And um, I don't know what it's like to be in his shoes. It sounds like he's got his hands full. But um, if you guys aren't in counseling, I, I would get there as soon as possible. Uh, darkest thoughts. I regret having my children. A mother isn't supposed to say that. I hadn't found out I was so sick at the time or I wouldn't have done it. They're too much work for me to cope with. I'd let my husband have full custody, but I'm ashamed of what people would think of me. Killing myself seems the best idea on hard days. I can't cope with the life I made for myself, and I'm bringing my family down with me. Well, you know, if aside from the way your husband talks to you, um, oh, shut up, Paul. I, I was gonna go to go to counseling with your with your husband. Uh, Darkest Secrets. When I was 18, I had my first suicide attempt. This was pre-internet, and it wasn't as easy to research. The bottle of vodka I took uh, the random p collected pills with made me sick. I awoke the next morning in a pile of vomit. I cleaned everything up, showered, and went to school. Terrified my parents would find out. I wish every single day I'd died back then. I wouldn't have had to hurt so many other people. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've been into BDSM since I was a kid. My first experience of masturbating, I tied myself up. I fantasize of more extreme BDSM scenarios, especially being caged. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish my parents knew the pain I've been in since a child, how bullied I was, how miserable I was, but I could never tell them they'd be so hurt. Then it would all become about them and their feelings. Um, what what a textbook example of 
the damage that narcissistic parents can inflict on children. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? Just to disappear, not to exist anymore. Have you shared these things with others? I have the most amazing therapist who has saved my life on many an occasion. I tell him everything. No one else seems safe anymore. How do you feel after writing these things down? Upset, seeing how much of a wreck my life is. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't think I'm qualified to give advice, but you're not alone and someone understands. Well, thank God you're going to you're going to therapists and hopefully they can help you navigate through this shit with your uh, your husband. This is an awful moment filled out by Cleonidae, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um who is um, uh, non-binary and their awful moment. I remember I was about eight years old and we had just moved into a new house. It was very old and much larger than our previous tiny home, so it had a mystical feeling to it. There was a huge avocado tree right in the center of the backyard. While my brother and I were exploring, we found an old, beautifully carved, small wooden box sticking slightly out of the ground, being pushed up by the roots of the tree. I was so over the moon. I felt like I was in an adventure book, and this was the beginning of our journey. I thought we had found treasure or a time capsule or an old magical relic. We brought it to my dad, and he cut the lock off and slowly opened the box while my brother was doing a drum roll. I was shaking with anticipation. I remember thinking, this is the coolest thing that has ever happened to me. Inside was a few dirty syringes, a pipe, and a couple of baggies of what I only assume now was heroin. I'm actually relieved reading that because when I first read this, I thought it was going to be a severed head. Which actually would have been an even better awfulsome moment. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Sally sells seashells by the OCD shore. And about uh, being a uh, sex crime victim, she writes, he continues to steal from me even years later, by taking money out of my wallet every time I go to a counseling session. Oh, that is heavy. It's so true. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself cosmemophobic. I don't know what that means. Um, it's too bad there's not an internet where I could find out. She is in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, she's straight, and her survey is only partially filled out, uh, so I'm just going to read what, what she has. Um, she's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. My dad used to beat me as a teenager occasionally in a drunken rage and would tell me I would never achieve anything or be successful. I wish he was alive because I am now wealthy and successful, but meh. Darkest thoughts. I am extremely ashamed that I fantasize about my stepdaughter dying in her sleep. I don't want her to have a horrible, painful death, but I don't want her to be in my life anymore. Um, Paul, please read this. I need your help and advice. As I'm too ashamed to go to anyone else in fear of being judged. Judged. Any good therapist would not judge you for this. Any good therapist would say, well, what can we do to help with this? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about what your stepdaughter uh, does that uh, triggers you. And you are not a horrible person for, for having those thoughts and feelings. There, there are, there's no such thing as a horrible, <clears throat> as a, a um, immoral feeling. Uh, it's just what, what we do with it. So... Um, 
Yes. Uh, Darkest Secrets. My partner and I have been together for 10 years. The only reason we haven't spoken about marriage is because his daughter and I don't get along. I have tried for 10 long years to love her, but it's really obvious it never will happen. My partner and I have a fantastic relationship apart from that. If this ever gets read by anyone, I'm sure you will all judge me and tell me how much of a selfish, fucked up human being I am for staying, uh, for staying in this, because uh, I should have left the relationship years ago, right? I don't want any children of my own, but I'm stuck with this brat, whether I like it or not. We only care for her half the time, but when I get home from work and she's back from her mom's, I get this horrible feeling like I just want to send her right back. I can't believe I'm willing to live like this. We fight a lot or I'll just keep everything bottled up and try to go out so I don't have to be home around her. I take any drugs I can get my hands on just to deal with having her around. I know I have codependency, so... If I left, I know I would probably end my life. I have no friends. I don't see how seeing a therapist would fix anything. You couldn't be more wrong about that. And it, it, um, you saying, I take any drugs I can get my hands on just to deal with having her around. You can't blame, nobody can blame their drug abuse on another person. Um, so, uh, even more reason to go see a therapist and maybe get into some type of support group for codependency or or drug abuse. And I guarantee you that will help you deal with people in your life that push your buttons. But it's work and it's humbling and it takes asking for help. And I can tell you there is no way to you know, to use the the cliche to have your cake and eat it too here. There is no way to um to have your stepdaughter drive you less crazy with you not working on yourself that's the that's the 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 weird loophole of um recovery is that to help us deal with other people it's not about fixing them it's about fixing ourselves and then we find that we have more um tools to deal with People that fucking piss us off or scare us or abuse us or whatever. I hope that all made sense. Um, this is, hold on, sip of tea. But let me reiterate, you are not a terrible person for having those feelings about your about your stepdaughter. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this was filled out by um, Quinn who is a a trans male, and uh, Quinn writes, I've been dealing with, uh, what are your issues? I've been dealing with depression and anxiety since I was 11 years old. I'm nearly 24 now. Uh, So for the last decade, I've been on a couple of different meds, and I've gone on and off to therapists. Additionally, I'm transgender, and I have some dysphoria relating to that. Overall, I'd say that being trans has compacted my depression and anxiety. There are days when it's so difficult to leave the house just because I can't bear the feeling of constantly being misgendered. What has helped you deal with them? Combination of drugs and therapy, mostly, along with me growing up a bit more and coming to understand myself better. I'm currently on the track to start medically transitioning to better show my preferred gender. Just knowing that's happening and will happen helps a lot. 
when things get bad, whether that's depression or anxiety, my quote regeneration mode is to play video games with rich storylines or break out my watercolors. Generally, when my headspace is a mess, I need to be alone. And for the past year or so, I've finally been able to ask for that alone space and for the people around me to respect that. Good for you. Uh, what if uh, things, if any, have people said or done that have helped you with your issues? There have been several times in my life where my parents said something along the lines of, you make things more difficult for yourself, or you always like to do things the hard way. A few months ago, I told my therapist about that, and she straight up said to me, this isn't your fault. You didn't choose to be depressed or have an anxiety disorder. And that, uh, I floated through uh, the rest of my week. Um, high on the revelation that my mental illnesses weren't my fault and that every time I struggled to do even the most simple things, it wasn't that there was something wrong with me or that what was going uh, wrong was my fault. It's like someone who uses a wheelchair. You don't tell that person, hey, you can't walk. Wow, you make your life difficult. So not only did I have some internalized stigma against mental illnesses, so did my parents. My therapist, by saying something so very simple, helped me understand myself better. Since then, I've treated myself more gently and with greater compassion and care, which were things I never really allowed myself before. And I would bet, Quinn, I would bet that you, as a result, are treating other people with greater compassion, um, gentleness, and, and patience. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by Henry. And um, hold on one second. Who is, uh, he's 17, and his happy moment, he writes, when I was in elementary school, I went on a school camping trip. My home life at the time was filled with emotional and physical violence from my alcoholic father. So going on this trip was already nice to start with. Uh, my group's cabin leader was an African-American guy in his 20s. One day, he asked me something about my personal life, and I was too scared to open up about it, so I said something like, you wouldn't understand. Later that night, he walked me out of the cabin while everyone else went to sleep. He asked me, what's going on? Like, if he could see through my eyes that I was in pain. Uh, I immediately started crying and telling him everything about my home life. It was the first time I had opened up about that part of my life with anyone. He listened and gave me the most comforting hug that I have ever received. His last words to me were, keep your head up. I will never forget him. Thank you for that, Henry. Um, and you're 17, so you are you are a year away from getting away from, hopefully, from getting out of that toxic environment that you're living in. Um, any suggestions to make the podcast better? Uh, he writes, there's a guy named Henry Rollins who has given me a great deal of inspiration throughout my life. You may know him better as the ex-vocalist of the California punk band Black Flag. Um, you should have him on as a guest. I would love to have Henry Rollins, and I do know who he is. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey. This is filled out. Oh, Henry. Henry, doubling up on, on our Henrys. His uh, issues are anxiety, bipolar, uh, and dissociative disorder. And what has helped him, music, writing, and exercise. And what have people said or done that have helped you? He writes, people with similar symptoms talking to me about their experience and them listening to my experience. It helped me put a name to my disorder and fully grasp the effects it has on me. 
This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, I don't know how to pronounce this, but I'll give it a shot, Larissa Anjou, um, about her sex addiction. She writes, I knew I was attractive. You get to sleep with me, and you and you. Everyone gets to sleep with me. Next day, walk of shame. I knew I was undesirable. I'm only good for fucking, not for loving. Uh, about her skin picking and nail biting. She writes, too much tension in my hands, my body. Release it by skin pick, skin picking and nail biting. Uh, extract impurities. The mild pain is nice. It's a release valve for the tension to ease out. Face, neck, chest, shoulders, back, hands. Uh, about experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias. She writes, I'm too white to be considered a, quote, real Latina. I'm tired of feeling the need to explain myself to rightfully claim my ethnic identity. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Gray Arrow. He's straight. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, He has never been sexually abused. He has been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, Growing up, my brother hit me so often, I still to this day flinch if someone raises a hand to me. The occasional high five is met with a shudder of fear. My parents divorced when I was eight, and ever since then, my mother has treated me as if I was a replacement for my father. She doesn't believe in boundaries and dries off after a shower with the bathroom door open. She says she doesn't want us to be, quote, ashamed of our bodies, but there's still a word called modesty. Yeah, by the way, that is a form of sexual abuse. That is absolutely a form of sexual abuse, uh, a parent doing that to um, to a child. Um, and the... Treating you like your replacement for her father is emotional incest. So um, do not minimize these things. Um, Any positive experiences with your abusers? I love my mother to death, but I feel as if uh, I were to leave home, she'd kill herself. She's threatened this before. Oh, that that is so abusive. That is so abusive. I'm so sorry. Darkest thoughts. Uh, I want to fuck every woman I see. Fat, skinny, tall. I want them all. Um, Darkest secrets. Uh, I've been cheating on my girlfriend for almost a year, but I'm too much of a coward to just leave her. I've started multiple online relationships with women, never hooking up with them, just simply taking in those feelings of being wanted and using them to fan my ego. You know, and this, this uh, again, I, I'm I'm no mental health professional, but man, this this sounds like um, like sex addiction, which is so common with people who have been sexually abused or emotionally incested by a parent. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to have an orgy with as many women as possible. Just have them all around me, pleasing them all one by one until my cock falls off. Um, how does that make you feel? I feel heard and slightly aroused. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my girlfriend I'm sorry. I can't tell her, though, because then my charade will be over. You know, my, my thought is is I'm, is I'm reading what happened to you as a kid and the way you're acting out now is if you don't get help, um, it it's probably not going to change. And I would make getting help for sex addiction um your highest priority, you know, or at least going to talk to um, a therapist who specializes in um, sex uh, addiction to find out if if they believe you're uh, a sex addict. They're called CSATs. That's C-S-A-T, which is Certified Sex Addiction Therapist. And um, 
and to process these things that your that your mom um, did to you. Um, uh, oh, all right, let me continue reading this. Uh, what if anything do you wish for? Happiness. I, I don't. I don't find anything that makes me truly happy. Maybe I'm just not meant to be happy. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm afraid to expose these feelings because everyone will know how broken I truly am. You are not broken. You are not broken. You may be. Um, you may be um, wounded, but you are not broken. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Frustrated because I wish I could outthink my thinking problem, but we all know that's impossible. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You and I need to seek out a sex addicts support group. Well, there we go. There we go. So get to it, buddy. Get to it. And uh, sending you lots of love. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by M's. And uh, her issues are anxiety and moderate depression. And what has helped you? Therapy, walking, jogging, and letting myself feel my feelings. Meditation is great for just sitting and sitting with and identifying feelings. Uh, what have people said or done that has helped you? Uh, whenever someone on the podcast says an exact fear, a burden is lifted from me. It's a connection with a stranger. It makes me feel like a human instead of a freak. Uh, Paul talking about your mother making you feel icky has finally let me say the same thing about my dad. He never touched me or said anything really creepy. All he did was check out women in front of me and tell inappropriate jokes. He would demean women for their physical appearance, including my mom. It just made me so sick. It made me think that all men objectify and judge women physically like that. I can tell you all men do not. Sadly, too many do. Um, and what you experienced um, is every bit as serious as um, a parent um, physically violating you. Um, it is the, the message that is sent by the parent that beats the kid, fucks the kid, or ogles women and demeans them in front of their kid is that you don't matter. That is the injury. This is from the My First Day in Therapy survey, and this was filled out by a woman who is between 26 and 35, and um, she's a therapist. And what brought you to therapy? I started experiencing horrible panic attacks after years of chronic anxiety. One day it was so bad that I couldn't calm myself down, so I called up a crisis hotline, and the kind gentleman gave me the number to a few places where I could go and talk. Describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy, either as a client or the therapist. I was kind of terrified. I spent about an hour before my appointment sitting in the parking lot crying. The vulnerability of actually going and doing something for myself felt like too much. I was scared of giving myself the identity of someone with problems. Of your fears, uh, did any of them come true? Vulnerability is scary for me. I'm used to helping others all the time. Things are still scary for me, so I still have to push myself to go because the feelings after it are worth it. Um, as a client, describe what works best for you in therapy. Uh, safe place for sure. Non-judgment. Seeing things from more of an objective viewpoint. Definitely the homework. I've had people give me advice before, but the fact that she understands how hard it is for me to follow it makes me feel less guilt over the thought of not doing it, and I find myself less self-defeating because of it. Um, 
As a client, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? I I felt pretty good. She was close to my age, so it felt like she could understand better. I didn't like when she seemed distracted or looked at her watch. Um, Do you feel like you can be completely honest with your therapist? I feel like I can be uh, absolutely honest. She's the only person I feel I can be honest with that will respond appropriately. I came to that feeling when after... Venting for a good 30 minutes, she tells me that considering how much more trauma I've experienced in my life than the average person, she isn't surprised I have so many mental issues. I was surprised. I tried to look at my life um, positively, but I never knew that things were that bad. Is it positively? The staple is right in the wrong. Oh, objectively. But I never knew that things were that bad. It really made me rethink things. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with a group of new therapists? Uh, distractions might happen, even if the environment is set up so they don't. Excusing yourself is more acceptable than acting distracted while someone is venting. Great point. Uh, and then finally, we have a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Lost uh, at Land. And uh, her happy moment on the phone with my father for at least two to three hours. I was painting and had him on speakerphone and he was telling me funny stories about going to concerts as a teenager. We lived in different states and both were busy, but that night we just really connected and I was playing the stones which led him into these stories. I painted as he talked and we laughed and really connected. I would take pictures of the process of my painting and send them to him during our conversations and he was so impressed and complimented me and then continued with the stories until my painting was done. It's probably the best painting I've ever made. So beautiful. So beautiful. My favorite thing in the world is just those little moments when when parents just put the rest of their life on on hold for that moment and just uh, witness their kids being themselves and don't try to change them and and just connect with them. It's so, so beautiful. So beautiful. Uh, well, I hope you guys are surviving uh, the Bermuda Triangle. Um, if you want to start a nap club, I will just tell me where to send my fee and uh, I will become a charter member. Um, I got an envelope this this uh, this week um, telling me that my pillow is going to be inducted into the Pillow Hall of Fame. So I'm pretty excited about that. But they need me to give them my pillow to bronze it. So <laughs> I'm already tired of this bit. <laughs> Oh, I love starting a bit and then just bailing on it. Uh, Herbert update. He's going to get a couple of teeth pulled tomorrow. The doctor has him on a diet, uh, which he is not happy about. But they added another med and his coughing seems a little better. So I might have jumped the gun when I said that he was dying. But uh, aren't we all dying? Let's end the podcast on that. We're all dying. Merry Christmas. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. You are most definitely not alone. And um, the one constant in the world is that things change. So if, you know, one of my friends at uh, my support group tonight said, if uh, if things are terrible right now, they will get better. And if things are great right now, fucking enjoy them. 
So, suck on that. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.